Welcome to The Real Deal Conversations, a podcast produced and recorded by In The Box Digital Recording. And now your host, Megan Deal. Hello, we're going to be with Cody Swearingen today. So Cody is a licensed mental health counselor with applied counseling, and we're going to talk about mental health today. It's an important topic, especially since COVID. We're out of isolation physically, but I think we have a major crisis of being in isolation mentally still. And a lot of depression and anxiety, there's so many people struggling with it, even more so, and we need to learn about it, what to look for, what to look for in ourselves, what to look for in the people around us, and also some, you know, coping mechanisms and tools to take away. Sometimes, you know, if you do get counseling, sometimes a session can be booked a little far out. So definitely some tools to get by in the meantime. First of all, we're going to talk about the signs of depression and anxiety. Cody, depression, it's the most common mental health condition. World Health Organization estimates that 264 million people around the world are living with it. So just kind of explain to us a little bit about that. Depression really affects how one feels, thinks, and acts. Sometimes you don't even realize that you have depression. You might not know those signs, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It really isn't a one-size-fits-all diagnosis. There's lots of different diagnoses for depression and how it affects people. The symptoms can be different from person to person. It's helpful to know some of the more common or obvious symptoms. If you know those symptoms, then you're able to seek mental health care help, you say a professional, things like that. There's about five different signs of depression. One of the things is a persistent, depressed, or low mood. It's common for us to feel down every once in a while. There's things that happen in our life where we're like, oh man, that just kind of sucks. This really stinks. You know, I'm not feeling real good. That can be brought on by stress, family issues, work relationships, outside relationships, just things in general. Something to pay attention to in regards to this factor would be that if these low times are lasting longer than normal and we just can't shake it off. Okay, lasting longer than normal because there's also high-functioning depressed people and then there's low-functioning. So when you're high-functioning, how do you decipher whether you're even struggling with it? So sometimes people just don't know because it's become such a normal part of their mm-hmm. life. They might be able to access or gain a diagnosis of depression by seeing a professional, but it's one of those things where they are just living with it. And so they're like, well, this just may be how my life is. So if there's something where you're feeling something's not quite right, or you have people, maybe friends or family that are close to you that might have said like, hey, are you okay? I think one of the things we want to do is we want to take the stigma away of going to see someone, whether it's your primary care physician to start off with and get a referral to a counselor or seeking out counseling to just say, hey, am I really okay? Is there something maybe that I'm kind of missing because I'm just not feeling myself? or maybe this has been my norm and this is what I think is normal, but there's better days ahead for me. Well, because it's mental health. It's acceptable to go to the doctor and get a yearly checkup. Like you said, there's such a stigma. We really need to normalize just checking in on our health with a professional. If you told somebody I went to the doctor today for my yearly physical, it should be the same feeling of, oh yeah, I just you know went to the doctor, just got to do my yearly check-in. To be healthy for yourself is to be healthy for everybody else too. Your kids, your spouse. Right. I really want to encourage people to treat getting a mental health check-in the equivalent to getting your physical check-in. Also, I have done counseling 
and there wasn't even really a major problem. But I did it because I want to have the tools and be equipped when a problem arises with depression or anxiety because it is something I struggle with. So if it ever got to a bad place, I want to already have the tools in place to combat it. Like the equivalent to going to the doctor and saying, oh, my health is terrible. I could have ate better and not been here. Well, if I would have gone and got the tools as the equivalent to we eat better to avoid the problems. So we go to counseling to get the tools to avoid the massive downfall. Right. right. Well, and I think, too, some people have this notion that if I go to somebody else and they tell me how I'm feeling, then reality kind of smacks you in the face. They can be like, oh, you know, maybe you've entertained the ideas of depression or anxiety in your head or some other type of mental concern. And when you go and visit with somebody and they say, you know what, you kind of check mark these boxes, that can be a little daunting and scary at times. Finding somebody that you feel like you can trust and have a good relationship with and somebody that's outside of your little microcosm of an unbiased opinion can be really helpful. If you see a counselor, I want to encourage you, if they're not the right fit at first, don't give up. Just like if you go to the doctor and you feel like the doctor for your physical health isn't the right fit, what do you do? You go see another doctor. You don't just never see a doctor again in your life. I understand you just poured out your story to them just to find out they're not a right fit. But don't give up because there's a lot of good counselors out there. So what would you say to finding a counselor? What are some things that you think would be key? I think you're spot on. The relationship is the biggest thing. Don't be afraid to tell your counselor like, hey, this this relationship isn't really working out. One of the things that I always open up in that first initial session with my clients is like, hey, more than anything, we can talk about why you're coming to counseling, what the issues might be. But if you're not comfortable with me and when you walk out of here, you're like, man, I can't go see, you know, the bald guy with the beard. It was really weirding me out. Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. want, you know, I don't want that to be <laughs> yeah. what's holding you back from getting the help that you need. Right. You know, I tell them like, hey, I have friends in this network of mental health that I can give you referrals to and guide you to and maybe find the right fit. But overall, that level of comfortability has got to be there so you can build that relationship with your counselor. That You know, we call that building rapport. Really developing that relationship that, you know, that's a trusted confidant now that you can share things without there being any judgment or anything else. You can just come in, say what you need to say. The counselors are trained. We're trained to say, have you thought about this? My goal is not to tell you how to live your life. That's for you. We're just trying to give some direction and clarify some things and bring some clarity to the thoughts or the feelings that you're having and help you explore those. I want to switch gears just a little bit. Before COVID, people probably thought, well, I didn't have any mental health issues. I was totally fine. Well, we've just gone through, is it two years now? Three years? I don't know. I've totally lost time with COVID. We've gone through a large time of stress. And some people, and there might be a word for this, I don't know, you can chime in, but it's like fight or flight. And they've gone on autopilot for the last two, two and a half years. And then all of a sudden it just hits them, especially the doctors and nurses. So is there a term for when you're on autopilot and all of a sudden the after effects of it come on that you've never experienced and you're trying to figure out why are these thoughts coming? Why are these emotions coming? When we're experiencing trauma, don't discount that you could be having some possible post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. Mm -hmm. There are things where you've gone through such a heightened, stressful time. Like you said, over the last two, two and a half years, we've kind of just been going through the motions. You know, the news, the things of the world, everything has been changing so fast. And we're in that age where we get that information within Mm -hmm. seconds. And so we're constantly having this feed of information coming in and we are not able to process 
that information, how we're feeling, how we want to react to those situations, even what we're hearing and seeing, you know, quick enough to really find what is comfortable and what isn't. And we just kind of keep pushing that stuff to the wayside as we keep intaking that information. It's like that fight or flight and just we're surviving. All we're trying to do is survive because we have to take care of our kids. We have to take care of our family. We have to navigate the financial ups and downs. There is so much we've had to navigate in the last two years that I think everyone is just surviving, not thriving. And I want to see people thriving again. Right. And one of those things that goes back to is this second sign of just a loss of interest in things you Mm -hmm. once enjoyed. There might be some of you out there who have enjoyed some things prior to going into the pandemic and having to stay at home and being in lockdown. You maybe have enjoyed being with friends and family and like those social gatherings was a big deal for you. Following different guidelines and trying to navigate what's right for your family and the people, you know, your inner circle. And maybe that took away from that. And now you're like, well, I don't really enjoy those social things anymore because what has happened is that heightened sense, the anxiety, maybe even the feelings of depression, just all those feelings and trying to process that, that has become our new norm. Three years ago, I was in this spot. How do I go back to that? Yeah. You know? And so how do people go back to that? I mean, outside of processing and getting through counseling, I mean, part of what we're doing today is giving people quick on-hand tools to start their life again. Right. So what would you say to those people? The first thing is trying to identify what did you enjoy? Mm-hmm. If you're not sure what you enjoyed, taking just that, for example, what did you do then that you're not doing now? And then why? Why are you making those choices? I talk to my clients a lot of like, what are the facts that back up this thinking? This is not my term. You have stinking thinking going mm-hmm. on right now. And yeah. So what are the facts that you shouldn't be more social or what are the facts that you should be staying at home or whatever? I think the hard part is that's different for different people or different groups of people, depending on your beliefs and what you're feeling and how you get your information and different things. And so that's very hard to navigate when you have multiple sides coming and saying this is right or this is wrong. And we're just trying, we're just doing the best we can. The, mm-hmm. I want to keep people safe. I care about people. At the same time, I want my family to experience things. I want to experience yeah. things and I just want to function. And so that becomes very difficult for for sure. Everybody processes differently. Everybody did things differently. Some people still lived and did whatever. And, but some people, like you said, we just stopped living. So I've dealt with depression and anxiety for a very long time, even before the pandemic. So for me, the things that come into my spectrum, I'm like, oh, I recognize it. Yep, that's what that is. Because I've dealt with it for so long and I've learned to get a handle on it. Right. But there are people that are new to anxiety and depression because the pandemic awoke something thing in their brain. Right. And so the signs and symptoms to them are probably very nerve-wracking to experience all of a sudden. They've gone their whole Absolutely. life being healthy mentally, which is awesome. I mean, there's people truly out there that are like that. And that's awesome. And then the pandemic has brought on a new array of emotions. So let's talk anxiety real quick. What are the signs and symptoms of anxiety for people who are just now experiencing it in the last couple of years, how can we help them recognize and put words to what they're feeling so that they don't think they're going crazy? We tend to equate anxiety and worry in the same basket. And so a lot of times people worry about their health, they worry about money, they worry about family problems. You're talking about the pandemic, the worry of going from here I was two and a half years ago to here I am now. But anxiety disorders really involve a lot more than just temporary worry or fear. Mm-hmm. You know, am I going to be able to pay this next bill? Mm-hmm. So for people with anxiety disorders, they don't really tend to go away. They can, but they tend to get worse over time if not treated. And so some of the symptoms would be things that interfere with your daily activities, such as your job performance, schoolwork, relationships. Some of the most common signs, if you look at the National Institute of Mental Health, the common signs of anxiety include some of these things. I'm just going to kind of read these off these bullet points. So becoming easily fatigued. 
becoming tired, having difficulty concentrating, not being able to focus on staying on task, or even sometimes when we say not being able to concentrate, you're having a hard time playing your video games or watching TV or the things that you enjoyed, you know, being irritable. I know nobody probably deals with that at all. You don't get irritated <laughs> at your spouse or your kids or right. things like that. And some of those things are normal, but when it becomes yeah. a consistent thing over time, it may be the root of that may be I've got some anxiety and now I'm projecting this onto the people that I live with. Mm-hmm. Having sometimes the physical symptoms, headaches, muscle aches, stomach aches, unexplained pains, difficulty controlling feelings of worry, sleep problems, such as difficulty falling and or staying asleep, blushing, sweating, trembling. There's just all kinds of different things. I kind of want to go real quick to the stomach ache because children, everybody says children are so resilient, but are they? I mean, look at yourself as an adult (laughs) and look back. How many times are you referencing something that happened in your childhood that is the cause of what is today? So are children truly resilient or are we just saying that because they look resilient? I think children just don't know how to process things. And so they look resilient because they're not going to verbalize it. It's going to come out in different ways. And so the parents and people say, oh, they're totally fine. It's resilient. Well, it could be that stomach ache they've had for a week. Right. So talk to me about what anxiety looks like in children because my oldest has dealt with anxiety. And so we've helped him with anxiety and stomach aches. So give us a little more for kids. Yeah. So besides doing counseling for applied counseling, for the past 13 years, I've been a school counselor. And I can definitely tell you the number one thing that we see when kids are dealing with anxiety anxiety is there are those physical symptoms, the way that the body manifests that worry and anxiety. Stomach aches being the number mm-hmm, one thing. Mm-hmm. Headaches, kids losing sleep or sleeping too much. Irritability is another one. And then all of a sudden you have this student or your kid who has been quote unquote normal, been reacting to things in a, in a normal way. And now they're finding themselves getting in trouble, acting out of school, making decisions or choices within the family unit, on the school bus, whatever it might be. Those things are all signs that something else is going on. But by far, the those physical symptoms is a good indicator to ask the question, hey, I know you're feeling this way, but what else is going on? Is there anything that's worrying? Yeah, because if you go to the doctor about persistent stomach ache and the doctor says, well, I can't find anything for it, then it's like, okay, well, then we really need to look at the emotional. Right. Also, when you see these signs that we just talked about in our children, it can be just the thought of, okay, I need to now talk to my child, but the thought of talking to your child about these things can feel overwhelming. It can feel intimidating. How do you even start the conversation? Because your kid may not want to talk about it. So there's kind of a few questions I want to ask. And the first one will be, what do you say to the parent who has recognized these symptoms now that they've heard about it and are starting the process of, okay, well, I need to have that conversation with my child. What can you tell them to start the conversation? Absolutely. That is a great question. As a school counselor, I got a lot of phone calls from parents like, how do I handle this specific situation? I have always told parents, my personal professional belief is that just be honest. Mm -hmm. Ask the question. Be transparent. Be Mm -hmm. straight up. Don't shy away from that. Mm -hmm. I think when our kids see us as parents or as caretakers kind of shy away from things, there's this level of like, well, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. And it makes it kind of scary. You know, like, well, this is something that's kind of bad when it's not at all. It's just as parents, we're like, man, I don't want to do any damage to my kids. How do I approach this? I think kids are resilient in the fact that you can ask some questions in ways. Being straight up allows them to understand that you're concerned. Again, you say your stomach's hurting. What caused that? They say, I don't know. You can ask more probing questions like, well, are you worried about anything? Is there anything going on 
school. When I work with my adolescent clients, I kind of compartmentalize some things into the idea of what's going on at home, what's going on at school, what's going on if they do some other type of participation in, in sports or other things outside of school. Maybe it might be something happening at church or other type of organization that they attend. And then just asking them, you know, like kind of compartmentalize those things for them. Because like you said, verbalizing is going to be the key. They don't know how to verbalize. Well, I have a stomach ache because really I'm worried about that math test that I forgot to tell you about and I didn't study for. And I'm afraid of what the consequences might be. Should I get a bad grade? Sure, or, you know? sure. And, and that's yeah. kind of simplifying things, yeah. but they just don't know how to verbalize like, hey, this is this is how I'm feeling. It comes out like, I don't want to go to school. I'm sick. Yeah. And so that's And then that's you're really... like, <laughs> get your butt up. You're going to school. Right. Like... And that's kind of oversimplifying things. I think the key is just ask them, just talk yeah. to them. The more you talk to them, even if they say no, and you'll see that, especially in those teenage years, leave me alone. Let me listen to my music. Let me play my games, whatever. I don't want to talk about it. But really, they're still not sure how to talk about it. Sure. It's not that they don't want to talk to you. And the more you talk and the more you're open about it and the more you normalize that. I think that's the key. Normalizing having open conversations. The more powerful it is for them to feel safe that when something really does happen and they do know how to verbalize that or they need to come to you, they're going to feel comfortable doing that. And I think also having a conversation with your child where you've not reacted appropriately before, which has put their blockade up. It is okay to be transparent, to be genuine and say, I want you to know my reaction to the question last time was not okay on my part. Would you be willing to give me another opportunity? Sure. You just be real with your kids. Your kids can tell the difference. Like Cody said, they know they have their sensors up. Hey, I didn't handle it correctly this first time. I really would love to correct that and have another opportunity to build trust with you. You also need to build trust with your children. I think people feel I'm an adult, so I don't need to do this stuff. It's my children that need to work for the trust. Right. Well, we're still imperfect humans, even as adults. And we need to recognize when we're wrong and when we need to say, can I have another chance at that? Right. And so I'm saying that all to say, one, it's a good thing to learn. And two, don't count yourself out yet just because something didn't go right the first time with your child. Don't give up on the continuing conversations for mental health. Well, and a couple of things there, if I can expand on that a little bit, was when you say, don't count yourself out. The the funny thing is, is a lot of times our kids setting up their own boundaries, wanting that autonomy, wanting to be more responsible, proving that they can handle things, maybe has responded in such a way that they put that block or that wall up and they're looking to see how are you going to respond. And maybe you didn't respond the best way the first time. You recognize that and you apologize. It may take a couple of times for them to open up and make that right. But what they're seeing is, did you really mean that? And the other thing too is, is when you're asking your kid how they're doing, how their day was, they're looking to you to see how engaged are you? Am I just saying this because it's a checkmark thing? I can be like, oh, I've done my parenting job, you know, check. Or is it really like, hey, I want to have this conversation because I'm really concerned because I've noticed some things that are not typical of how you normally act. And this is what has me concerned. And I think we can teach our kids to verbalize those things. You know, we talked the other day about emotions. And when you ask your kid, hey, how was school? It was good. Yeah. You know, like that's like the answer I get all the time. (laughs) Well, what was good about it? How do you expand on that? (laughs) You know, they have those baseline emotions, Mm -hmm. but what was good? Well, I had a good day because I got to see my best friend at school and it was a lot of fun. Oh, so it was good and fun. What made it so fun? Well, at recess, we beat everybody in basketball. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. Well, right there, you got some detail that you didn't just get with this is good yeah 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 you know no which is typical there's a lot of emotions like you said earlier there's a lot Mm -hmm. of hormones going how do we know as parents to look for the signs of anxiety and depression but also to recognize this is probably the hormones talking so what is the difference i think it's both i think Mm -hmm. you can be concerned about those things but we a lot of times what we see is as adolescents go through puberty that's a very difficult time because sometimes there are families that aren't open talking about those changes and there are students that feel very alone or embarrassed to talk about 
that. And so I think it goes back to having open and transparent conversations with your kids. What is appropriate for them and what you have decided with whoever's in your family unit, you know, that's leading that family unit, what is appropriate to talk about and at what age? That's for the listeners to decide what's appropriate for their family, but then to not shy away from questions and to just be really transparent, even if it's hard questions, even if it's, hey, we've talked some about self-harm and thinking about the world would be better if I wasn't here or, you know, what would life be like? I'm just, I'm a pain to my parents or nobody really cares about me. Those feelings of worthlessness, that is a common sign of both depression and anxiety. And so I think the research just says that like, hey, having these conversations and asking these questions is one of the number one ways that we can deter people in general, adolescents and adults from making poor decisions that maybe they're not sure that they really want to make. I want to talk about the uncommon signs of depression and anxiety. And one of them that you had said was hypersexuality. And that is kind of interesting to me just because of the state of everything. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think what people are trying to do is they're trying to find answers in a way that makes them feel good, you know? And so when you mention hypersexuality, you're talking about maybe some acting out behaviors, things that wouldn't normally fit the quote unquote, this is typically how you would handle a intimate or sexual relationship or maybe the lack of a relationship. Since the pandemic and having all this information, we have all these voices coming in telling us this is right, this is wrong. And so I think there's a level of normalcy going through puberty and different things where your adolescents are going to have questions. And so I think when it comes to that, again, I think the key is talking about what to expect when you're going through puberty and what that looks like. And not just from a physical aspect, but from the emotional side. As you get older, you gain more responsibility. And so what does that look like as you get older with the expectations in our household, the expectations at school, the freedom to get your driver's license Mm -hmm. and these things? Because the brain of an adolescent really isn't fully developed until 24, 25. But here we are, we get turned loose at the age of 18, six more years of development, you know, and we're like, all right, see you later. We've raised you well. Good luck look, spread your wings and fly. And really, there's a lot of direction that needs to happen when we're really being able to process what all of this stuff means. Also, one of the things that is uncommon, there's a lot of overcompensating just through the perceived happiness. I mean, honestly, somebody really might just be a joyful person, okay? So we're not going to knock the people who are genuinely (laughs) joyful people. Of course not. All right? But... To recognize some of these uncommon signs in our very close circle of people, whether it be a spouse or a super good friend, how can you recognize within them and approach it in a way that does not put them on the defense? Again, for me, it goes back to what I'm doing counseling with couples. It's that communication piece and being comfortable and having the safety to share what they're really vulnerable in. Unfortunately, everybody has that in their relationship. That's a big issue. That's a big issue is not having that comfortability to be able to be vulnerable. But I think that's why we talk about overcompensation because there's that level of I'm going to be, you know, this happy-go-lucky person all the time and nothing bothers me. Everything is great. You know, the house is on fire and you're like, yeah, you know. So I think that talking about that and when you see those things that aren't, again, I use this word lightly, but typical, if you're never seeing them come down and have those moments where a normal response might be, this is kind of upsetting. This would cause some stress or this is not being able to pay bills. And there's all kinds of examples we could use, but that person is always happy all the whole Mm -hmm. time. Like, well, that's okay. Nothing to worry about. And they're not really processing things as maybe we think a healthy individual might. Again, going back to what you said, we don't want to knock the person who finds joy in everything. Right, right. But for most of us, we have those moments where we can be pretty happy. We know where our hope is. We know how to handle those stressful situations. But then we turn around in those moments that it's okay to be like, man, this stinks. Or I'm really not looking forward to doing this. Or this is going to be difficult. And when you have that person that's always overcompensating the joy, it becomes very awkward. Yeah. And you can kind of tell. So I think, you know, if they're in your circle of trust, for lack of better terms, and you can see that, I think it's okay if you feel safe to question those things Mm -hmm. and have that. That would be my hope. You know, 
if you yeah. don't have that, I would encourage as couples to seek some counseling. It yes. may not be anything huge, you know, mm-hmm. but like being able to open up that communication, learning how to communicate and to listen to each other the right way, man, then the best years are ahead of you yeah. if you don't have that now. And if you are married or whatever your situation looks like with your significant other, do not be afraid to get counseling for your marriage. It does not mean that you have failed. It does not mean it's the end of the world. And you don't even have to tell someone you're in counseling. It can be a very private thing. But if you're worried that somebody's going to find out you're getting marriage counseling, that's a healthy thing. That's a good thing. Absolutely. That's not a, oh, well, so-and-so is getting marriage counseling. No, that's, first of all, mind your business. And second of all, (laughs) they're doing what they need to do for them and good for them. I have so much respect for people who do things that they need to do for their marriage and not just, well, who cares? They can figure it out themselves. And that's how people end up divorced. Right. So let's give some kudos to the people that are doing what they need to do instead of judging them. That's just my thing. Also, with marriage and recognizing the things in your spouse, I'm the kind of person that if I see something, we're going to get to the root of it and we're going to dig it out and never (laughs) let it grow again. Okay. Daniel is the kind of person that has to process. You give him something and he's going to need to process it. He's going to need to come back later. It's two very opposites. And we've been married almost 12 years. And so we have really learned how to navigate it. Every now and then we don't navigate it. Every now and then it's like, nope, there is a weed and we are going to uproot it and you will not leave my sight until it is. (laughs) And he's just like then on the defense because he has to process it. So for people who are recognizing things in their significant other, like Daniel and I, is there like a timeout rule they can have or something? that they can do to take away today so that they're not at each other. Yeah, you know, you just kind of said it. I think it's perfectly okay to have a timeout. I tend to be like you, I think, a fixer, and I want to talk things out. Mm-hmm. And we walk out of that room, we're done, it's yes. over. We're back to like, hey, our marriage is great. Yeah. And so my wife is one that processes. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful for that because mm-hmm. she offers a lot of insight that I miss when I'm trying to fix things in the moment. There's things that she's like, hey, have you thought about this? And why did you want to process so, so fast? And a lot of times the reason I personally want to process things so fast, I don't want to feel the pain that goes with that. I don't yes. want to I don't want to have to deal with the <laughs> yes. with the cruddy parts and how mm-hmm. I feel. I'm like if we can get past this, yeah. I can skip over the bad part yeah. and go back to being the funny yeah. guy or the happy guy, yeah. you know. But sometimes we need to sit in our pain and be like, why am I so scared to feel this way? But also, why was this such an issue for me? And I think that's where the insight comes from. And so I think that taking that time out is good because when we take those timeouts in our relationship and my wife's like, I need to think about this. We'll come back to this in a minute. I get defensive and I kind of put a wall up. But when I really think about it, I'm like, you know, she's not doing anything malicious. Yeah. And she's not doing anything to hurt me. She's needing to process that. And if I do what I say I do, if I love and care about her, then I should be able to give her time to process that. I mean, that's my personal opinion. But I think it also goes with what you were just saying. I need to process. And I think that's with depression and anxiety too. We need to allow ourselves the grace to process yes. our emotions and to not immediately say, there's something wrong with me. I must be crazy. I can't believe this. I got to hide it from everybody. Give yourself grace. Right. Whatever the situation that has brought it on is a valid situation. Yes. Give yourself grace. You are not crazy. If you sat down with Cody and asked him, what are some of the more detailed situations you've heard or detailed situations of emotion? You'd be like, oh yeah, I definitely am not crazy. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so give yourself grace. 
grace, right? We absolutely. We have this saying, don't should on yourself. Yeah. Don't yeah. think to yourself, I should have done this. I should have done that. Because then you're always living in the things that you didn't do. And you'll never meet up to those expectations. So when you're talking marriage and everything else, having the time to process that, process those issues, and to think to yourself really provides a great time of introspection for your spouse and yourself. Those are the moments that I tend to have some of my biggest breakthroughs and see some things. I'm like, oh, this is something I didn't really know about myself. But man, I can really use this and apply it the next time that I'm in a conversation. Yeah. Or even in my own personal life as I'm going through trying to do other goals or other situations that might arise where Mm -hmm. I don't want to feel those emotions anymore. Yeah. And you know, not only give yourself grace, but the emotions that you're feeling... I want you to look at it like your superpower. Once you get through it, you're going to be able to help other people get through it. That's going to be something so cool that once you get through the struggle, this phase, and you get the help you need, somebody who hasn't dealt with it is not going to be able to empathize and help somebody the way you have because you've walked through it. Yeah, and that's so powerful because that's the connection. You know, we talked about the beginning about the pandemic and how we were maybe this last two and a half years, there's a separation. Really what we're craving right now is to feel connected. We want someone who relates to us that we can look at, whether it's a friend, a spouse, an acquaintance, whatever, when we share a piece of our story or something that's going on, and then they say, oh, I totally know how you feel, or we hear something from them like, dude, I totally relate to that. Yeah, I totally get it. That's when you feel really good and you become more vulnerable and you open up and you share those things and you're like, I'm not by myself anymore, which yeah. surprisingly helps your anxiety and depression yes. go down. Yay. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, for sure. So if you are in the middle of it, I just want to encourage you, give yourself grace and know that one day you're going to be a light to somebody else. Really just work through it and know that it's going to be better, that there is a better tomorrow and you're not the only one going through it. I promise you. For anybody who's listening and wants to get connected with you as a counselor, if they are not local, can they connect with you like over Zoom? Do you do distant counseling? Yeah, I do tele- okay. I do telehealth within the state of Missouri. Okay. So as long as you live in the state of Missouri, okay. do telehealth, I offer in-person counseling and marriage counseling and have an office in Ozark. I'm seeing some clients down in Branson and may have an office in Springfield here in the next couple of months. And so. what, Oh, really? Yeah. That is awesome. Okay, so what do you specialize in? ADHD, marriage, what are some of the things you specialize some in? Some of the common things that I help people with is anxiety and depression, ADHD, marriage, premarital counseling, and then also kind of have been in my wheelhouse because of the elementary counseling, just behaviors, school success. I've been helping out a lot of individuals right now that really feel like they've lost a sense of hope and they're like, how do I get back on track? So we do a lot with scheduling and just kind of navigating your daily life and obviously depression and anxiety tends to play into that, but really giving them the coping skills they need to feel better and get back to their sense of quote unquote normal. If you don't see this on video, I just want to give you a quick overview of Cody. He looks super chill. Okay. <laughs> so if you're looking for somebody and you don't like the uptight looking people, I'm not going to trust you if you're uptight. So he's just super chill. And even when you talk to him, he's super chill. So I would definitely recommend Cody. I appreciate that. Um, Thank you. Whoever you're comfortable with, and especially if you're out of Missouri, I would still recommend finding somebody. Anyway, Cody, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank it's you for so, having me. It's so fun. awesome. And I hope you guys get some hope, some encouragement, and we will see you soon.